I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And you're listening to Hawk Talk, where we talk hawks. Only on ZZ105. Now, this is normally where you'd be listening to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. But on our current schedule, we record three out of every four weeks. This would normally be the fourth week where there would be no episode, but the world is, you know, the world right now. So we wanted, like we did last month, to do something, which in this case is unedited, off the cuff, and not particularly on topic. Yeah, we asked y'all on social media and around whether you would appreciate just having the continuity of us doing a fourth thing with the understanding that it wasn't necessarily going to be X-Men and definitely wasn't going to be researched. You said yes. Um, Despite the lack of Hawks, we are calling the segment Hawk Talk because we figured it needed a title and we're weirdos. So um, I, I think this week we are going to be Hawk Talking about... Media once again, but not so much X-Men as the books that we grew up on, because we made friends not over comics, but over over mutual favorite prose novels. And we've been revisiting some of those under, you know, current general crisis circumstances. Yeah, so I guess that would have been, God, that would have been in, in middle school. I'm trying to remember the very first books we bonded over. Were those Hitchhiker's Guide or was that just one of the early series we were into together? That was definitely the first book you lent me. Or not Hitchhiker's Guide, but the, the collection um, of of books because I'd read them all, but you had the one that had the Young Zaphod Plays It Safe short story. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I had, um, I, I definitely grew up on Hitchhiker's Guide. This is, um, that would have been edited out normally, but we are not editing this and we are sticking to it. Yeah, the secret point of these episodes is to make you really, really appreciate Matt's contribution on the rest of the weeks. <laughs> exactly. Um. But yeah, I definitely grew up on uh, science fiction in general and British humor, especially, I think like my dad, my dad, I've made no secret, is um basically the one who got me into most of the things I ended up being into. And Hitchhiker's Guide was on his bookshelf. I read the hell out of that series. I watched the old BBC miniseries and was sort of on the fence between whether the camp made it better or worse. It took me a long time to fully appreciate camp. And yeah, Jay, so when we started being friends and we were into some of the same stuff and could totally nerd out about it, that was awesome. That was. I think that the other series that we really connected over, and I again, I don't remember the order of any of this. I just knew it was in eighth grade. Um, the, the Darkest Rising sequence and The Chronicles of Predan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those were both freaking huge. And I feel like we can talk for a, a while about each of them. So I don't know, do you just want to dive into one of those and then we can move on to whatever else? I mean, maybe, but looking at both of them together, it's kind of striking how formative wealth, eh, Welsh mythology was for us both. It's true. Although with The Dark is Rising, only some of it is Welsh. It's like all British Islesy. And as a child who knew almost nothing about geography or politics or culture outside of, you know, South Florida, um, it was just this big British blob of awesome mythological stuff. Ah, see, by the time I got into the Darkest Rising sequence, which would have been elementary school at some point, I was very, very, very into Arthurian legends and specifically on variations into the, in them. So I looked at a lot of that. I was I, I got very into the geography, most of which I've now forgotten. 
I mainly just know about Cornwall because A, I'm going through the Dark is Rising sequence again, and the first book takes place there. And B, there's a lovely indie video game called Knights and Bikes about two girls in the 80s um, trying to do magic stuff to uh, save one of their dad's mini golf uh, park from being foreclosed on, and that's in Cornwall too. Knights with or without a K? Uh, with a K. Knights and Bikes. Knigets and Bikes. Now, I should qualify for those of you unfamiliar with the Dark Rising sequences that when Miles says the first book, he means the first book in story chronology. The actual first book of the Dark Rising sequence, The Dark is Rising, doesn't take place in Cornwall. But Oversea Under Stone, which is technically a prequel, does. Actually, I looked into that because I was always confused, and it turns out Oversea Under Stone, the first book, was written and published eight years before books two through five, all of which were published in quick succession. And going through it in that order, like Susan Cooper, the author's writing style, has this massive jump in quality between the first and the rest of the books. Oh, interesting. Have you ever read Seaward? I have, yeah. Also by Susan Cooper. That's a standalone novel. And to clarify, that is S-E-A-W-A-R-D as opposed to, like, the Arrested Development joke. Um, but, yeah, from what I recall, it was, like, a li- it was older characters because in The Darkest Rising sequence, it's all about straight-up kids who are getting involved in this big mystical thing going on. And in Seaward, it was teenagers, and it was had, like, it had more of a romantic element to it, which I really, really dug. I was, like, the perfect age for that, I think. It's well played, too. It's It doesn't feel the kind of force that it does in a lot of other books because the characters are very much there on their own as themselves and for themselves. They also have great names, Westerly and Calliope. Those are great names. I totally forgotten that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but OK, so back to The Dark is Rising, because I, I love this series so much. And whoever's actually listening to this, which, by the way, if this, if this is your first episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, like... It's not representative at all. Usually we're produced and we talk about X-Men. But um, if you do end up checking out the Darkest Rising sequence, I think it came out in like the, the 70s or thereabouts. But it's these five books and it's about these various kids who get embroiled in this big ancient conflict between the forces of the light and the dark. And there are like all these different artifacts they have to find. And there's a specific number of them and everything is very organized numerically, which I really appreciated as a kid. If you like Tolkien but wish he were better... <laughs> this is well i mean no i i figure they've got a lot of the same components in terms of things like traditional poetry in the middle that then plays significant roles um very very heavily mythically based but yeah susan cooper is i think is i think she's still alive is is just a stunningly stunningly good writer and especially writes really good younger characters of a number of ages something that's common in a lot of novels intended for for kids and teenagers, is that either you'll get writers who write kids who aren't believable, or you'll get writers who write kids who are very believable within a certain window. And one of the things that I've always really admired about Susan Cooper is that, especially in The Dark is Rising, she has a cast who span a tremendous, tremendous range of ages. I think the youngest character is 11, the oldest character is functionally ageless but there are there are a lot of teenagers and a lot of younger kids and a lot of adults and each one of them has a really 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 distinctive and really believable voice yeah totally it's great um and like so there there was an adaptation of the dark is rising we know there was knowledge exactly we don't acknowledge that it exists but if it did exist in a hypothetical world from what i understand it would have uh turned the main character uh, from this charming, young, thoughtful child 
uh, in England into a really sarcastic uh, American teenager. And it would have done something that movies keep doing, which is casting Christopher Eccleston, an amazing and often scary actor, in the role of a super impressive, cool villain, and then doing nothing with it. Like, he was Malekith the Accursed in Thor the Dark World, one of my favorite actors, one of my favorite villains, dud of a character in that movie, and he plays the Rider in this hypothetical Dark is Rising movie called The Seeker that we do not acknowledge. So I think I've mentioned this before tangentially, but the Rider has a lot to do with with my thoughts on this Um on and off on Twitter, Kurt Busiek and I have, have sort of gone into tangents of it would be cool if someone did a really good comics adaptation of this. And the artists we keep on coming back to are Bill Sienkiewicz and Walter Simonson. What do you think? Oh, yeah. God, they would both be amazing. Or honestly, I know Simonson generally inks himself, but we know that Sienkiewicz is an amazing inker who can do amazing things to other people's pencils. I don't know. Maybe that could work. Ooh, Maybe. Maybe or, another name I would I would throw into the ring at this point is Tyler Crook. Uh, oh, Tyler Crook from uh, he, I, I'm most familiar with his work from Harrow County, which is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, he would be great. He he has such a um, it's a simple style, but it packs so much detail and emotion into itself. Well, his watercolors specifically, I think, would be a perfect fit and would be incredible for, again the versions of this story that that exist in my head. So how do you feel when books you grew up reading get adaptations, either comics or movies? Because I've been thinking about that a lot, and it's it's such a mixed experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There haven't been a, a ton, honestly, that I can think of. Like, there was the Chronicles of Perdane, and most people, I think it's Perdane or maybe it's Perdane. I always said Perdane when I was a kid. I don't know. I did too, but I also have no idea how it's properly pronounced. Welsh pronunciation is very complicated, as I understand it, and I'm, I suspect I'm awful at it. But um, when I was reading those books, uh, there was already an adaptation. Disney did the movie The Black Cauldron based on the second book, and I read the books, or rather I had them read to me as bedtime stories well before I saw the Disney movie. And so when I saw the movie, like, it was all wrong. And the thing is, I feel like I was incapable of appreciating the movie on its own merits just because I knew like what Gurgi was supposed to look like or what the princess Ilanwi or however you pronounce her name was supposed to look like. And like it was all different in the movie. And I was just offended as a child, entirely pettily and irrationally. Yeah, I've never actually seen it. For a long time, I obsessively avoided adaptations of my favorite books. And I still have mixed feelings. Like there are very few that I actually like. The most recent one that I actually saw was um, was A Wrinkle in Time, which, again, I left with very, very mixed feelings about it. I thought the casting was phenomenal. I thought the, the performances were terrific. And at least for me, the movie missed the biggest, most central point of the book. I feel like I know what you're talking about, but I also feel like we probably shouldn't spoil it for people who haven't read it. But in terms of just sort of what the what the theme is supposed to be, is that kind of what you're getting at? Kind of. And and I don't know. Again, I, I don't know, because for me, you know, I read it so young and this was such a definitive part of it for me when I first read it that it colored my later readings of it. So I, I don't know to what extent this is an objective experience. But, yeah, I think it's I, I it, it fell really short for me in ways that were frustrating, because, again, everything else about that adaptation was so good. The other kind of complicated piece with that is that I know that Madeline Engel actually tried to avoid having adaptations of her works during her lifetime. 
and actually didn't want characters portrayed on covers just so that kids could functionally put themselves in. And the majority of the time, I would think that was a good thing. What what I think makes the Wrinkle in Time movie a good and useful exception is that it specifically casts kids who are demographically and racially part of groups who are taught not to picture themselves as the heroes, who are taught that heroes are default white. Yeah, yeah. No, when uh, when I saw that the that Meg was uh, cast as a being played by a black actress, that that's a great way to do that because there's absolutely no reason to not do that. In the same way that like you know Hermione being black in the uh, Harry Potter stage play sequel, like okay, go for it. It's not contradicted by the prose, but honestly, even if it was contradicted by the prose, so. I mean, there's a lot in A Wrinkle in Time that's fundamentally unadaptable. There's a lot that you're going to have to stray from the book from in order to make a good movie. And I think, I mean, I think that's kind of a fundamental aspect of good adaptation. You figure out what works in the medium you're working in. And some of that means taking into account the change in audience and the change in time and the change in perspective. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, to tangent, even though I know we said we wouldn't, back into X-Men, I just finished Legion last night, the TV show. And talking about adaptations that take a lot of liberties, Legion does, but as a television show as opposed to as a comic, it uses its medium so, so beautifully and just does some stuff that wouldn't be possible in a comic book. And I don't know. I mean, whether or not you you think it really captures anything about David or about his history or about the other X characters that are in the series, I don't know. But it takes a cool idea from a comic and turns it into a pretty unrelated but somewhat connected cool idea in a TV show, and that's cool. Yeah, I've only seen two seasons so far, and if you spoil it for me, by the way, I will be very upset. But I agree wholeheartedly across the board for that. So having tangented into X-Men, which is the exact opposite of our usual MO, I feel like we should tangent back out um, to our, our decided topic because we were we were talking about YA and the other series that we we really clicked over, the, Chron- the Chronicles of Predan, which we haven't really touched on. Right. So um, those are by Lloyd Alexander. Uh, they came out, God, was it like the, the 60s or was it earlier? I don't know. The thing is, like, I just got all these books off my father's shelf. And so to me, they were all just current, even though they came out over decades. If I recall correctly, one book of each series was a Newbery winner. Um, I think so, yeah, because Terran Wanderer, the fourth book in the Chronicles of Perdane, I believe was. And definitely the best book. Like, it's it's always weird when a later book in a series, especially one that's really not a standalone, wins an award. In this case, I mean, if that book had come out after another book had won, I would be irritated that that wasn't the one that won. Yeah, yeah. So the Chronicles of Perdain, um, it's all about Welsh Welsh, ugh, Welsh mythology. I can't even pronounce the word Welsh. That's how hard Welsh pronunciation is. It even, like, sneaks into other languages' versions of its name. Um, but, yeah, and it's about this kid named Taryn who starts out as an assistant pig keeper on a farm and ends up basically helping to save the fantasy equivalent of Wales. It's very, very much a specific epic formula in that regard. I gotta say, man, assistant pig keeper might be the best starting level job. Like, it's so much what it is. Oh, it, it reminds me of, like, some of the less impressive Warhammer professions you can have in the Warhammer fantasy RPG. Along with all of your horrible diseases. Yes. Uh, No horrible diseases. Well, uh, kind of horrible diseases in the Chronicles of Perdane. But it's a great series. And one of the things I like about it, it's about Terran. Like, he is absolutely the main character. But the supporting cast, 
that goes into and comes out of the series is just phenomenal. Like a bard who the strings on his lute keep breaking every time he lies and he can't stop lying. This super spoiled princess that ends up being like this incredibly noble character. This weird little beast man named Gurgi who's obsessed with munchings and crunchings. A dwarf who can turn invisible but only while he's holding his breath. Like it's just – it's a fantasy series, yes, but it's not just your, okay, that one's obviously Legolas, that one's obviously Gimli. Like, it just does its own cool thing. And it pulls out of the – well, it, it, it still falls into great man fallacies because that's what epic fantasy or Western epic fantasy really is. Yeah. But it keeps the main character very specifically grounded in the world that he's from in ways that I think a lot of series quickly lose. Like, he never stops having that connection. Agreed, yeah. Um, yeah, those are definitely two of the big ones. The Dark is Rising, that one I found on my own because um, my father didn't have that series. I got it from a Scholastic book fair when we were in school. Oh, just... shit, those were amazing. Do you know they, if they were. still exist? Um, I believe they do still exist, yes. Um, or, well, I don't know. still existed a few months ago. Whether they will still exist now is questionable, but... These were great. So Scholastic put out these catalogs and these like little magazines. And I don't know if schools had to buy them or if the catalogs were free to schools or how exactly that worked. But you got them monthly or so and you could order books from them. But there was also the Scholastic Book Fair that came, you know, once a year to the school that was just like a little tiny pop up bookstore. And it was the coolest damn thing. Yeah, and Scholastic was very good, I think, at selecting, like, books that would be appealing to and appropriate for whatever grade you were in, like, whatever age level you were, because, God, so many of the books that I was into, I just found them there, and a lot of them, I was just intrigued by the cover art and the title, and, like, I think there was a little blurb in the catalog for each of the books, and that was all you got, but the books were pretty cheap, and you really generally didn't ever get a dud, or at least I didn't. Yeah, they were really cheap in, in ways that made them accessible in the way, in ways that, you know, books from bookstores weren't. And, oh, God, that was so cool. I was so into that. The other books that I was really into, um, I, I, I sort of think of, of the stuff that you were reading as, as largely series-based just because that was the stuff that you tended to bring up and lent oh, yeah. to me. And a lot of my favorite books either were standalones or in one case were pieces of duology that I, I just read in isolation. Oh, yeah. I still remember years later, like after we were kids, you introducing me to one of your favorites, The Hero and the Crown. Yeah. I So I don't think of that as YA. That's actually another Newberry winner, I think. And I don't think of it as YA just because I read it for the first time when I was like eight, but I was also reading a lot of adult novels and YA at eight. It's a neat book. It's again, it's, it's Robin McKinley, whose whole thing is elegantly deconstructing fantasy tropes in ways that tend to center female characters and especially teenage girls. Um, she's done that in a lot of different directions. The Hero in the Crown is probably my favorite of hers. Again, I'm not sure if that's because I imprinted on it like a baby duck at a very, very young age or or what. Um, but it's it's really, really, really neat. And some of it is some, you know, some parts of it and some aspects of it are better than others. But I have I have definitely been through maybe more copies of that book than any other, or at least I had been by high school. Mm -hmm. Another book that I always come back to and I've talked about in so many different formats and is out of print, which is infuriating right now, um, is called Midnight Hour Encores. It's by by Bruce Brooks. 
Oh yeah, I um I still have the copy of that that you gave me when you moved, and it is lovely. I'm so so glad to have read it. Thank you again. Yeah, it is. Me, I don't know if I would choose it if I had to choose a single favorite book, but I might choose it if I had to choose, you know, one to keep. And well, and that oh, was. That one's unique um, among what we've already talked about because it's very much not genre. It's not fantasy. It's not science fiction. It's not. And it's got – you know, I was talking about how, how writers write kids and write youth. And it's its main character is an extremely, extremely, extremely precocious 16-year-old who's who's both a cello prodigy and just extremely smart for her age. And also very, very much 16 and frustrated and myopic and selfish in ways that feel so genuine to that and so genuine to that age. Like the difference between what it feels like to read that book as as a 12-year-old and as a 16-year-old and as an adult really distinct a part of that too actually is because it's got really tremendously well-developed and human adult characters oh yeah um the main character is dad uh taxi is his name right that's what he goes by uh that's what she calls him that's yeah. no one else his his name is cabot and at some point as a little kid she heard someone call him cab and thought it was funny to call him taxi and it just kind of stuck right that was it um but yeah reading that book as an adult um what an incredible deeply flawed wonderful character as dads go he actually reminded me a lot of greg universe from steven universe you're absolutely right and for me the um yeah it's in the opposite order but i i and i hadn't thought of the connection before but you are yeah yeah that's well and Siblance's mom, too, because the, the the concept of the book is this character is 16. She's been raised from early infancy by her dad, who's a single father. She knows pretty much nothing about her mother. And for complicated reasons, at the age of 16, she tells her dad that she wants to meet her mom, that she wants mm-hmm. to go meet her. All, all she knows is that she lives in the San Francisco area. And her mom, the the first large part of the book is about this road trip and is about sort of her father trying to figure out how to explain her mother to her. And then her mother actually shows up in the book as a character. And the ways that women and especially women who voluntarily leave their children are written and portrayed in fiction tends to be very, very one-sided and very, uh, I'm trying to think of how to, how to, how to put this. I mean, there are, there are rules in terms of like the amount of happiness and justification they're allowed to have. Right. And the extent to which they're allowed to be realized people and to the extent to which they're allowed to be things other than focuses for sympathy, guilt, pity or anger. And this book ignores and breaks pretty much all of those in very, very good ways. Yeah. Oh, it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful character study of these these people who are kind of assholes, but who are so human and so overall well-intentioned that you have to love them. It's also an extremely, extremely good um, or has extremely good portrayals of teenage sexuality, which is is something that isn't going to be in there as a plus for everyone. But that for me, finding in a book where it wasn't the focus 
was a really neat experience because you see a lot of this is about sexual awakening books about teenagers or ones where it's a big central thing. And in this, it's not, but it's it's present. Mm-hmm. And that was that was that that's a really cool paradigm shift. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, man, I I hate that this is the segue, but talking about portrayals of teenage sexuality. Oh, God damn it. You're going to talk about Piers Anthony, aren't you? I, I have to talk about Piers Anthony. Piers you Anthony. Don't. I, but I do in this episode because Piers <laughs> Anthony was my favorite author for like many, many years when I was young. And so Piers Anthony is most known for the Xanth series. That's Xanth with an X, which is this fantasy land largely based on A, puns, and B, the fact that there are like 60 of these books. And, well, and, and Florida, Florida geography specifically. Also Florida geography, yes, because Piers Anthony was from Florida and I was from Florida. So that was cool too. Um, But yeah, as a kid, I loved these books. And a part of what I loved was that they did address um, teenage sexuality. And as I, I was like the right age for that to be a really cool thing and, and a sort of titillating thing. Looking back as an adult, Piers Anthony's a little, little weird in, in how lovingly he portrays uh, teenage girls a lot of the time. So that's weird. But as a kid, man, those books were great. I had so many friends, both male and female, who were who were also into Xanth. And I got into Piers Anthony's other stuff as well. He had a series called The Incarnations of Immortality, which was kind of Sandman-ish in that it was about these um, these anthropomorphized large concepts like the first book was about death and then time and there was fate and war and nature and eventually good and evil all as characters and i i really loved those books they were just piers anthony was was a great writer it's hard to go back to honestly and i don't know that i would really recommend his books but like i was so ridiculously into him so i read a bunch of piers anthony largely because of you and because of another friend of mine who was really into him. Um, but I went into him, I think, a little later and from a really different direction because I started with Letters to Jenny, which is nonfiction. And it's a series of letters he wrote to a very young, I think, teenage fan who was in a car accident and was semi-responsive and in a coma and whose parents got in touch with him, with him and were like, she's really obsessed with these books. Maybe letters from her favorite author would help. You know, there are things, the things she's responsive to tend to be things that she has strong feelings about. So can we try that? So he, he basically wrote her a letter a week for years and eventually collected and published them. And it's really interesting going into his work with the perspective that adds, because he addresses a lot of the stuff that you brought up as squeaky stuff in his writing which i feel like you kind of have to if you're him and you're writing long letters to a teenager who's reading his books and he talks about why he writes that stuff and what he hopes that people will get out of it and it's still super weird like the the actual content in the books is still pretty weird and i feel like there are points where an editor probably should have stepped in and a couple places and been like so you're saying you're intending this but here's how it reads right yeah um but yeah it's 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 interesting and it i i don't like this i i'm not a huge fan of piers anthony's writing i i think that he's he's fun he's good at the thing that he does but he does a thing um but that book is neat, and I really like the writing in it actually much better as well. So that's that's the point I'd recommend starting if you haven't. 
Uh, fun little story about about uh, Jenny, the focus of Letters to Jenny. I'm not sure if her name is actually Jenny or if that's just what she went by. I, I, I don't know. Either way, it was a name that she used enough that when a character was named after her, that character was named Jenny. Right, yeah, because there's a character that Piers Anthony wrote into Xanth named Jenny Elf. And the reason Jenny was an elf was because this girl's other favorite um, YA-ish series, I don't know if it's really YA, but was ElfQuest, the comic by Wendy and Richard Peeney. And so uh, ElfQuest actually created this character sort of simultaneously. Um, she was in an, an official, if not exactly canonical, ElfQuest story. And the deal in Xanth was that she had somehow come from the world of two moons in ElfQuest into Xanth. So a crossover was born of just these authors trying to be nice to this girl, which is really sweet. And as a result of that, that was actually the first Xanth book that I read was the one that, that Jenny was in. So, yeah, Piers Anthony was never really my thing. I, I think my my Piers Anthony equivalent in terms of slightly uncomfortable these days fandom is probably Orson Scott Card. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, uh, a slightly older audience uh, intended for that, obviously. For I mean, game. wasn't for me. Again, I read Orson Scott Card years before I read Piers Anthony just because I read Ender's Game when I was eight. Yeah, and I feel like eight's probably not the age most people would want to read those books. But I don't know. Uh, kids are different. I mean, I read way, 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 way up, and one of the interesting things about reading a lot of the books I did as early as I did was revisiting them later and catching what I had and hadn't caught. Yeah, fair enough. And yeah, the Ender's Game series, um, I haven't read the more recent books. Like, I know the series has just sort of kept going, but yeah, because of Orson Scott Card's politics that have come out, I haven't really wanted to read his recent stuff. Like, I just, past a certain point, I can't separate uh, art from artist, and with him, I, I hit that point, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, my history with that is longer and more complicated, and I'm not really going to go into it here. But yeah, at this point, I don't buy his work. I definitely didn't see the movie when it came out, but I wouldn't have anyway, because that's that that's that's a book that I consider pretty fundamentally unadaptable. Yeah, well, and I also know that Ender's Game was one of your very, very favorite books when we were getting to know each other. It was for a really long time, um, and it was specifically because there are so few well-written representations of really asynchronously profoundly gifted kids in fiction and there mm -hmm. were so few kids in books who talked and sort of felt off in the ways that i did yeah well it's also just phenomenal science fiction i think the sequels uh even more just the way they address alien life communication uh faster than light travel i learned so much about theoretical faster than light travel specifically from that series yeah yeah agreed that was actually that was one where i read a lot of the books very early and didn't like any of them as much as the first one and then went back to them when I was a few years older and and loved the later books. Uh, yeah, completely uh, agree and, and same, in fact, even though I read them a, a bit later than you did. Um, talking also uh, about slightly more science fiction-y stuff, um, my other big author, aside from Piers Anthony, was Anne McCaffrey, uh, most well-known for the Dragon Riders of Pern series, which sort of starts fantasy and then goes more science fiction as you learn more about the world. Um, those, I, those seem to hold up pretty well. Like you definitely notice some, some pet themes that McCaffrey has, but it's just this, it's this cool fantasy world where people have bonded with slash domesticated dragons and this stuff called thread falls from the sky and burns through everybody. So the dragons have to fly up and set it on fire. And there's this whole guild structure and Harper, a Harper hall. And like, it's just a really well-realized world. And it's one of those series where having a shit ton of books in it, um, was exciting for me getting to see different facets of the world 
I read too much Anne McCaffrey at once when I first started reading her, which actually, which you, you turned me on to her and you gave me a whole bunch of her books. And I read a bunch of them at once and they were good up to the point in every single series when the protagonist hooked up with her father figure. And that's yeah. one of those things that you might be able to miss if you're reading her books as they come out. But holy shit, did it happen continually. And it happens in her other books as well. There's a series called The Rowan where that also like happens more than once with more than one set of characters. Yup. Including and, like the kid of the first set of that, which was again was was one of one of my fuck this points. And I think my my official I'm done point with McCaffrey was I'd read the first Harper Hall book and loved it. That was the first McCaffrey I read. I actually read that sometime in elementary school and then I just sort of forgot about her and I didn't know that wasn't a standalone. And then I read the later ones. And then I decided that they could just go to hell from there. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. And I mean, that series is also still going. McCaffrey, I'm not sure if she's still alive. I know that her son either is co-writing or has taken over writing the series. But yeah, if you if you end up getting into Pern, boy, howdy, there's quite a lot of it. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like I've been monopolizing talking about like my favorite series. What else uh, did you have? Ugh, a long, awkward mid-afternoon yawn. Um, God, what else did I have? I, the thing is, I read everything. Like, I, I just read continually and obsessively. Like, we, I, I read a huge amount of Dickens in eighth grade. Like, I got really obsessed with, with just reading as much Dickens as possible. Um, I read Sophie's Choice that year. Oh, boy. Yeah, and then I reread it, and I watched the movie, and then I realized that the movie is part of the best possible. So... I actually had a long conversation at dinner about this. This is going to be a massive, massive tangent, by the way, like bigger than previous tangents. <laughs> That's saying and, something. And this is this is the Cal the the not Calvin the Kevin Klein trifecta. So Kevin Klein is a wildly actually no it's four parts. I'm hitchhikers guiding it. Um, Quadfecta. I'm just going to keep calling it a trifecta that's increasingly incorrectly named. Again, okay. hitchhikers guiding it. Um, Kevin Klein is a wildly wildly versatile actor in ways that very few are, and in ways that have avoided him getting typecast and being recognizable in the ways that a lot are. So the official Kevin Klein escalation, standard movies, is Dave, and then A Fish Called Wanda, and then Sophie's Choice. Oh boy. Now, Going... for those of you familiar with the novel Sophie's Choice, but not the movie, Kevin Klein plays Nathan, and he plays him really, really really well and i say this as someone who is is not an adaptation fan that's one of those adaptations where i think i i think basically i think it's watching worth watching for kevin klein and meryl streep's performances and the rest is kind of eh. but those two performances are unbelievable now the chaser for that is the pirates of penzance <laughs> in which he plays the pirate king because he's kevin klein and he can do that Oh, see, I uh, he's mostly been on my mind lately because Bob's Burgers is my comfort TV show, and he plays just the utterly out of touch with reality landlord, and he's lovely in it. Wait, he does? Mr. Fish Odor. I I somehow had no idea. He's he's also, if I recall correctly, in both The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Road to El Dorado. Oh, okay. I've never actually seen the second one, but I remember liking the first one. Oh, dude, The Road to El Dorado is awesome it's about a bisexual polyamorous um triad having having 
some issues with and generally taking down theocracy and making bad choices all the way. That sounds like everything I want out of fiction. Have you seen the gif of two guys like going back and forth saying both, both, both is good. Ah, that yeah, one. that's that's from that. And, and they're definitely talking about, you know, genders and hug up. Hooray. Probably, I think. Um. OK, so there's one thing we have to talk about before we stop, uh, which is Dragonlance. Oh, I thought you were going to say Board of the Rings. Oh, uh, well, there is Board of the Rings talking about books that we really bonded over. That was by the Harvard Lampoon. It's a very short parody of Lord of the Rings. And it's like it's one of those dumb, smart parodies like Aragorn. You know, he's a ranger. And so in this, he's the lone ranger and he keeps tripping and having silver bullets fall out of his bandolier. And Bilbo Baggins is named Dildo Bugger. And it's really stupid, but it's also got really brilliant parts. Like, I don't know if you remember this part. This was my favorite. Where uh, Frodo, well, okay, Frito, but Frodo, uh, asks Sam if uh, he thinks that there's a long way to go to get to Mordor, and Sam looks at the large stack of pages in the reader's right hand and says, yes, Mr. Frodo, I'm afraid there is. I loved that meta humor there. Yeah, that book was so formative to your sense of humor. It really, really was. Oh, man. Okay, so thing I don't know if I brought up on the podcast before, um, there was a brief period of time where I, I wanted to be a humor writer. And that was largely because of Board of the Rings and everything Dave Barry ever did. Like, that was, was what I wanted say, to. You specifically wanted to be the Harvard Lampoon circa whatever writing fantasy. Uh, yes, I, I do still have like a four page draft of what I referred to as mainstream fantasy novel, which was me making fun of fantasy tropes. But basically, I was just retelling a cross between the Lord of the Rings, the sort of genre and Dragonlance. Um, it's it's not very clever looking back because, man, man, I was like 11. Give me a break. Uh, the sort of genre that reminds me of a series that I read all of without ever really getting into, which is the Magic Kingdom for Sale sold books. I remember seeing the Landover books. Yeah, yeah I, they, I never they, read them. The premise was clever. In retrospect, the defining theme was horrific. What what were the premise and the theme? Well, the, the premise was, was a guy who's got way more money than he knows what to do with going through one of those ridiculous rich people catalogs where you can buy private islands and shit and seeing Magic Kingdom for sale and buying it. And eventually becoming its Thai king and turning out to be yeah, a really good one and stuff. And, like, I feel like maybe that's a bad lesson. Huh. Yeah, yeah, pro probably so. That you can just be good at a thing because you have a lot of money to throw at it. Well, no, it's not because he has a lot of money to throw at it. But it's 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 a very, like, it's it, it's a shaky, shaky premise. And it's, it's it's again, it's a better better concept than execution. Well, that's fair. Um, but, oh, right, we tangented immediately away from Dragonlance. So Dragonlance... Uh, was a D&D &D setting that got turned into a series of approximately infinity books, um, many of which uh, we have both read. It was, for me, like, that's just what fantasy is. Honestly, kind of even more than Lord of the Rings. Like, obviously, Dragonlance and all modern fantasy owes an enormous debt to Lord of the Rings and is kind of just aping it in a lot of ways. But Dragonlance did it well. Dragonlance had some of the best versions of all of those stereotypical types of fantasy characters. Dragonlance achieved the thing that all teenage or young adult gamers think at one point that they're going to do brilliantly, which is adapting an actual campaign into novels. Yeah, yeah. Although I found out recently that the record of Lotus War anime was that as well. That was an actual campaign adapted into manga and anime. 
That is somehow entirely unsurprising, and not just because I encountered those around the same time and borrowed them from the same person. (laughs) There is that. Not you, actually. Those were ones, those were both sets of things that I borrowed from Brett. I remember he came to school with an enormous cardboard box full of Dragonlance books for me at one point. I think I remember that specific day, yeah. Which I took home and basically, like, read all of in about a month. They're, They're pretty quick reads. But yeah, if you're looking for just completely mainstream fantasy with okay admittedly a couple of tweaks like instead of having halflings you have kender which are like halflings but annoying kleptomaniacs um but it's like it's it's the most mainstream possible fantasy and it's just fun it's comforting in that regard and it still does some surprising things like at one point one of the bad guys goes through a bunch of weird mists after being defeated and ends up in a different DD setting uh ravenloft the horror DD setting and that blew my young mind but it's just this really – this world that's explored in such great detail, and as a kid, I just – like, a part of me just lived there, just lived in Dragonlance's world of Kryn. They are 100% popcorn books, but they're popcorn books into which you will get deeply and weirdly invested. Like, I'm trying to think of, of what they're equivalent to in my head, and I'm really kind of blanking, but I, I feel like they're they're – Oh, they're, I, I read them in generally the same spirit that I now read occasionally, like Travis McGee or Bernie Rodenbar novels, um, in that very fun series, and I really like them and can enjoy them and get invested in them and then not care about them. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's kind of what you want. You you want to have entertainment that you don't have to think too hard about, that you can just enjoy, and then, you know, go have lunch. Oh, shit, train of thought from how I discovered Bernie Rodenbar, who's a Lawrence Block recurring character, um, to to other other novels that I read way too young. You know what I was fucking obsessed with in middle school and high school? Uh, so Tom Robbins. Guys, but... I was so obsessed with Tom Robbins. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom Robbins <laughs> is not even remotely YA. Like we both read him, like, around that era. But I still love that guy's books. I still love his sort of snarky but earnest sense of humor and his his obsession. massively, massively problematic representations of gender and sexuality. Oh, they really are, but they're so <laughs> lovingly problematic. I mean, yeah, I sort of feel like they're a set of novels by someone who lives in a kind of vaguely alternate universe. It's very weird that they're written by an actual person. I, I completely agree. Yeah, they seem like, you know, fiction within fiction. And I guess some of them do have fiction within fiction within fiction. Yeah, like uh, Tom Robbins and then like Christopher Durang, who's sort of a, a sillier Tom Robbins. He's a, no, he's very, very different. He's a playwright and he he writes. Or, in, no, not Christopher Durang. Um, the guy that did Island of the Sea. Christopher Moore. Christopher Moore. Christopher Moore is very much. All right, so listeners, sorry about that. Our first call got kind of aborted for technical reasons, um, but we're picking up pretty much exactly where we left off, where I was saying Christopher Moore is absolutely a real person. I know this. I've corresponded with him. He helped me write a term paper once. The other thing about his stuff is that I feel like it's 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 much broader than Tom Robbins is. Like Tom Robbins is specifical, specifical, specific opera is so narrow and precise and kind of formulaic and and more writes a much wider range of stuff and i think is to some extent a better and more versatile writer but yeah it was also someone i was very into at that age oh gosh who else marge piercy oh i was so into marge piercy oh yeah she wrote um he she and it about this sort of science fiction prog golem thing right 
Well, it's it's two sort of interlocking stories, but one of them is of the Prague Golem. And I actually reread that last summer before I went to Prague, and it totally holds up. Yeah, that was another one that you lent me in. I don't know if it was high school or college, but I loved it. I, I don't know. It could have been either. That's another one that I've gone through multiple copies of because I read the paperbacks pretty much to death. Let's see. Oh, who else? Um, gosh, I am completely bl- – Barbara Kingsolver. I was blanking on her name, but I remembered it. Barbara Kingsolver I was super into. I, I, I read The Bean Trees in like fourth grade. Someone gave my mom a big box of books when I was like eight or nine, and that was one of the ones in it, and he, she, and it was in it. So I, I read both of those very, very young and just, just got really hooked on those writers. I love how much that's a commonality for both of us. It's just that we there were books around and we just read what was around and some of them really, really grabbed us. And I, I'm so grateful that we both um, grew up in ways where there were just books everywhere that we could just dive into and that presumably our parents kept the really inappropriate stuff on higher shelves or something. Like, Oh, my just, didn't. <laughs> that's true. Yours didn't. Um, but no, just having that available, like it was – it was magical knowing that if I wanted to just read a new book, dive into a new fictional world, I could. There were options. And I didn't know anything about a lot of them beyond just their titles and their covers, kind of like a scholastic book fair in that regard. But that made it almost more magical, just picking up a book and being like, I really don't know what I'm getting into. That's an experience that I think is maybe not unique to physical books, but largely centered in them. And one that it's really hard to replicate online in ways and to the range and scale that it is with physical media. Like I'd love, I'd love to find more ways to do that. And I, I really need to figure out how to get eBooks from the library right now. I'm kind of getting to do that because I'm staying in someone else's house and I brought a couple books of my own, but I'm also sort of just getting to pick up the things that are around me, which is neat to do. So actually that that's a note to close out on. What are you reading right now or what have you read recently and enjoyed? So these days I don't read nearly as much prose as I would like. Um, Part of that is just that, you know, there's a lot of research necessary for the podcast. So it's so much X-Men. Right now I'm reading all of Onslaught because I was reading all of X-Men and then Onslaught hit and it's uh, a rough time, but uh, interesting. Um, But in terms of prose, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, I've been going through the Darkest Rising sequence again, which, oh man, it it totally freaking holds up just as, as like a wonderful, magical comfort read. Um... I just uh, read the Berserk manga, um, which is not for children even a little bit. And honestly, I don't know that it's for people even a little bit. But it was recommended by some people I trusted, and it was it was really interesting. And I enjoyed many aspects of it, uh, while many others were um, not uh, ideal. I was going to say, I've heard a lot of both good and ominous things about it. Uh, both accurate, I think. I, I, it's one of those things where I don't know that I would recommend it, but I'm glad I read it. Um, and, oh, what did I also just finish? There was another thing. I was just asked this in an interview and and now I can't remember what, um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, in, in quarantine land here, I can get back to reading books without pictures. I super, super miss them. What about you? I've been having a lot of trouble focusing on books lately just because everything and life and sitting down and really allowing myself to get immersed in something without, like, checking my phone every five minutes without jumping up and feeling like there's something in the back of my mind that's urgent and an emergency that I need to handle has been really difficult. But I've been trying to shake that off. And what I've been reading when I have been is Uncle Tungsten, which is Oliver Sacks' memoir. Oh, Oliver Sacks. That's the um, neurologist, right? Yeah. And this is specifically about him growing up 
in the UK in the aftermath mostly of World War II as a kid incredibly obsessed with chemistry. That sounds fascinating. And I know having read some Oliver Sacks in the past, he's an extremely engaging writer. Very much so. And I very, very much like the type of writing it is. There are a couple attributes in books and also just kind of in people, but in writing that that tend to make them really inherently and immediately appealing to me. One of them is obsession. Mm -hmm. People writing about things they really care about or really cared about or that were disproportionately central to them is pretty much always interesting to me. I, I've described myself before as an enthusiasm enthusiast, yeah. and I think I think this is kind of an extension of that. And Ryan's self-aware memoir is a genre and an area that I really love and find really interesting. Um, it falls into a really good niche in terms of the intersections of what I read and what I write having to do with nonfiction and nonfiction as it intersects with subjectivity and the extent to which subjectivity and memory are the relevant strains versus fact checking and the points where those do and don't coincide. And again, this is just a really, really fun book for that. And Oliver Sacks is a really engaging writer. The other the other two I brought, um, I have How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which I ordered and ironically haven't gotten around to yet because I've been busy. <laughs> and uh, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You by Janelle Shane, which is about um, AI and neural networks. That's really cool. And actually that How to Do Nothing book, I haven't read it, but I did read a really long article about the book that was super fascinating. Likewise, and possibly the same one. Very possibly, yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, there we are. Listeners, if you've made it this far into us talking about mostly not X-Men at all, then we are um, we are grateful and surprised. So thank you. I, I hope you've enjoyed us talking about uh, YA books and uh, non-YA books. And once again, we hope that this episode and its general roughness has made you appreciate Matt Hunter all the more. Normally, you can find the two of us explaining the X-Men wherever you found this podcast, uh, three out of every four weeks. Next week, we will be back. We will be talking about Generation Next in the Age of Apocalypse. Indeed. We will see you there, and then in another month, we'll see you here talking about who even knows what, but uh, we, we really hope you're doing uh, okay out there. It's a, it's a rough time and we're thinking about you and good luck with everything. Thanks for joining us on Hiking Words. Thanks for joining us on Hawk Talk only on ZZ105. Stay tuned for 12 straight hours of ambient noises of the piano forest.